0: My guest today is Jordan Wells. Jordan owns and operates J. Wells Kennels in Woodstock Valley, Connecticut. I'll pick Jordan's brain to pull out the details that make him one of the country's top bird dog trainers today, and we'll discuss his Wells Fetch method. It's all in the definition of detail. The Onyx Hunt app is one of the most valuable hunting tools that I take into the field every day, and now that app is available in our vehicles. Yep, Onyx did it. They launched Apple CarPlay. That means when you plug your phone into your vehicle, you now have the option to open up the Onyx app right on the dash of your hunting rig. No more holding your phone while driving, which is obviously dangerous, and you get all of the same layers on your vehicle dash that you get on your phone. You can see the aerial view of your location while driving down the road. Just like you'd see if you're using your own Maps, Apps, Waze, or Google Maps. Except now you can find out if the properties around you are open to the public. The landowner's name that owns the land. And if you're in North Dakota, you can see if that land is posted without even touching your phone. To use this feature, simply make sure your Onyx app is up to date. And if you're not an iPhone user, don't worry. Onyx is currently working on the same platform for Android phones too. Apple CarPlay, the latest incredible feature from Onyx Hunt. Always know where you stand and now where you drive with Onyx Hunt. All right, all right, here we go. Welcome to this week's episode of the Flush Podcast. I'm Travis Frank. I'm your host, Brandon Morton, as always produces the show. Our guest today is Jordan Wells from J. Wells Kennels. And normally we like to banter back and forth a little bit, Brandon, but I'm sorry. I'm gonna I'm gonna go right to our guest today. I Hope you're all right with it. I can handle it, I guess. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, I've been told from many well-respected dog trainers in the country that Jordan are you are one of the top dog trainers in the game today and that you don't have a lot of time to be away from the dogs at your kennel so we thank you for making time for us today we really appreciate it
1: no i'm appreciated that you asked me to be on here with you guys it's a great opportunity as well
0: all right well let's just get right to it what does a typical day at your kennel look like this time of the year
1: it's a uh long day uh we wake up um get out there around 6 o'clock and try to get the kennel under control um <laughs> so the, the morning kind of starts with getting the kennel keep getting order in the kennel um getting all dogs you know ready for the day um cleaning and then we get dogs kind of moving right away um the dogs are ready to go so we get boarding daycare and training at our kennel so we get daycare drop-offs in the morning time the train and board dogs and the boarding dogs are coming and going. Um, So the mornings can be pretty chaotic. So we try to keep as much structure and order in the morning as possible. Um, Throughout the day, things get more organized and I'm the only trainer here. So I'm doing training throughout the day. We have a couple help that do daycare, you know, the socialization groups. Um, I'm dipping in and out of private lessons through the day. And our days usually run, you know, five, six o'clock after daycare dogs go home. So Day-wise, it's pretty much the same Monday through Friday. Um, it's me and my fiance, our two daughters. You know, are involved full time in the kennel. It's kind of a family operation. So we're here Monday through Friday, and then on the weekends, I usually go out there and you know just take care of the dogs. But the day, the days are long this time of year. The winter times are a little bit shorter. Um, the training and the dogs is pretty full from you know April all the way till October. And then in the wintertime, it slows down a little bit. Gotcha. And
0: I mentioned that you're you're based out of Woodstock Valley, Connecticut. Whereabouts in Connecticut is that located? Or are you located?
1: So we're in the northeast corner of Connecticut, and it boards Massachusetts and Rhode Island. It's called the Quiet Corner. It's a very agriculture-type area, um, a little bit kind of older style, but it's very woodsy, hilly. Um, and it's a... Uh, it's a nice place to live, quiet place to live, and it's a it's a nice place to have a kennel.
0: What what kind of bird hunting opportunities do you have nearby?
1: So wild birds are kind of non-existent um, around us. We do get woodcock, uh, sorry, woodcock migration. Mm-hmm. But if you wanted to, you know, hunt, you got your preserves. Um, there's a lot of hunting clubs. Almost every county or town has a hunting club. I belong to one that's local the fin fur feather. Uh, I've been a member there since 2011. And we have a lot of pheasant hunting opportunities and preserves by us. If you want to travel for wild birds, you're going to get up into upstate New York, New Hampshire, Vermont, Maine. Um, So around us, it's really just stock birds and preserve hunting.
0: How in the world did you end up in this business, in the dog training world? Was it a dog (laughs) when you were young that got you into it or something else?
1: It's one of those stories where, you know, I did not grow up around dog trainers or anything like that. Just, I had German Shepherds growing up. And I kind of, looking back now that I'm a trainer, I always kind of was interested in the dog, you know, always played with them when they were pups and interested in the training, teaching them to, you know, just the typical party tricks every family did back then with the paw and all that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as we got as I got older, my dad's a huge hunter. Um, we never had a bird dog growing up. And then my best friend, Kyle ended up getting a, uh, a setter and it's just something about it. Once I started seeing the dog work and, you know, I just got more and more interested in it. And I really, really wanted my own dog. And I had my eye on the German shorthairs and it wasn't until I moved out for college that I went out and just kind of just bought a puppy. There was really no, no planning or anything. I just said, I'm going to go get a puppy. And it just started there. Um, I got that dog and started working with it. And it was a really, really good dog to start with. Um, you know, the dog really allowed me to learn and kind of progress off that dog. Um, she's still alive today. She'll be 13 in September, but that dog kind of just started everything for me. But I always had an interest in animals and dogs, um, but never really grew up around bird dogs, never had a bird dog growing up um, until I was about 21 years old.
0: It's interesting how quick they can consume your your life, you know, and trying to understand what makes the dog tick. Uh, was it a German Shorthair that you ended up getting?
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, gotcha. it was just you know, my buddy had a setter and for some reason my dad talked about German short hairs and it was a breed that I always had an interest and eye on just because I, I wasn't very educated as far as the other breeds out there, but the looks of it, the, you know, the style of it, the coloring of it, everything kind of was like attractive to me. So that's what I searched out for. And when I bought that puppy, I found it in the back page of the newspaper. It was just a a litter advertising there for 600 bucks a pup for AKC, you know, the next state over in Massachusetts. And I just called the guy and went up there and picked the pup out at four weeks old and had no, no intentions of, you know, being a dog trainer. I just wanted a hunting dog um, just to go out and bomb around and just kind of get out there. And it just, it snowballed into everything that I'm doing today. Well, how did you become a dog trainer then? Um, it I really kind of just fell into it. Um, I actually started working that first short hair, and uh, we got around a Springer trainer up here who's very successful. And it's one of those things where you don't know what's possible with a dog until you see it. You know, people can talk about it. People can, you know, say, hey, dogs can do this, dogs can do that. But when you actually see it and you see the capability of a dog – it kind of sets a whole nother standard for you. Um, So the training part became kind of like a a challenge and went on kind of like what everybody does, YouTube. And, you know, back then there wasn't Facebook, but, um, you know, I was on YouTube and Googling, you know, how how to train a dog and asking questions. And I ended up kind of just stepping out of my comfort zone and going to watch like hunt tests and field trials and trying to meet people and get into the game. So I think the the challenge of training levels, um, you know, to train to different levels got me interested in the actual training part. Um, So when I was done with college, I went to UConn for four years. I was kind of stuck trying to find a job that would work. And, you know, I became a landscaper, did some stone wall building and, you know, just kinda of killed time until I was trying to find that right job. And then an opportunity up here, there's a Kennel, Quinnebuck Kennels, was looking for a new gun dog trainer and was not a gun dog trainer before, but at that time now I had two short hairs and was successful hunt testing and doing some field trialing. So I went up and applied and got hired. And that's when the whole training for a living or, you know, a career started for me. And that was in 2014.
0: So what training methods are required then, or did they, did they say, this is how we train here? This is how we want you to train. Or did you come in with your own ideas on how you wanted to train dogs?
1: So I didn't have like a system coming in. I, like I said, I was just trying different things. Um, I was familiar with like the Hunt Smith. I already had those DVDs. I had, you know, other books that, you know, were around that I've read but I didn't have like a start to finish method. So when I started working there, they had more or less a system, um, that they wanted to train dogs. They were using wonder leads, command leads. Mm -hmm. Um, they were teaching obedience. They were doing gun dog training through a lot of like, you know, place board stuff. And it was a, it was a retriever based program. They did have, you know, a pointing dog program as well, but it was a lot of like verbal telling dogs the woe and your very typical program. Um, but where things kind of switched, and this is kind of where I fell into the right stuff at the right time, is the dogs were starting to become more and more difficult that were coming in from the way they were being raised. So the call went out um, to Rick Smith that first year that I was there, and he came in and did a seminar. And that's when we kind of really switched over to a step-by-step method um, using the Huntsmith method. What's it
0: like when you see a, a legendary dog trainer like Rick Smith in action working with a dog? I mean, I've I've been fortunate to watch some really, really exceptional dog handlers work with dogs. And for me, it's, it's just like, I, my jaw is just dropping watching how that dog goes from a wild dog to listening, looking, anticipating. I mean, it's it's so cool. What is it like for you in your world at that time to see somebody like Rick up there talking to the dogs without saying a word?
1: Right. Yeah, that's, that's where a lot of it just went over my head that first time of, you know, seeing things happen, but really not knowing exactly what is happening. And that's a uh, that's a big piece of the puzzle nowadays of looking back, of seeing all the little details that actually happen, um, but you kind of just overlook them all. So it was I think it was overwhelming in the beginning to see how easy, you know, things could be done, but then you try it and it's it's hard, it's frustrating. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you know, they come in and it's like all you gotta do is this, all you gotta do is that, and look how easy it is. And it's like <laughs> you know there's a big piece missing here how can you do it and you know understanding now a lot of that was the way he feels and the way he thinks and the way he acts around the dog not just the technique but there was a ton of reading dogs going on there was a ton of you know confidence and things he was putting off to the dog that allowed that dog to transition from one dog to the other but that initial seminar I think we were more exhausted mentally than the dogs of just trying to like stay hooked up and, you know, fall step by step because this was like a, you know, learning something new, completely different style, completely different method. Yes, we had the lead, but, you know, the, the theories and ideas were all different. So is that the point where you said, all right,
0: I'm going to go with this, this training method then, or,
1: or what yeah, happened Yeah, the, the kennel owner, yeah, the kennel owner, like, committed a 100% to, you know, this is what we're going to need use guys this is it's more effective it's going to allow us to train more dogs it's going to get you know the new dogs that are coming in that are full of like behavioral issues they're stressed out they're scared they're nervous they're dominant they're pushy you know this system is going to help us you know be more successful so we jumped on board right away to you know changing everything putting you know cables in chain gangs down Um, because we used to work dogs one at a time out of the kennel. Um, so like time, you know, function, you know, the way the dogs are responding, the way the dogs would watch another dog work and learn just by watching, it allowed us to to get a much more organization to our operation.
0: Gotcha. I, I sometimes wonder, I mean, I feel like so many different trainers that I've talked to go back it like it goes back to Delmar Smith, Rick and Ronnie Smith so often. I'm just amazed at how often things are built off of what they've launched with the Hunt Smith method. Do you have an idea, you know, dog trainers around the country what percentage if you had to guess, like what percent has built their program off of that method?
1: I I know the principles of what they do and what other trainers you know, talking to Rick and he calls it my pedigree of dog trainers, you know, that I have behind me, you know, he shares stories of this guy and he shares stories of his father and his grandfather. Um, so I think things getting passed down theory wise come from just a couple people. Um, but every trainer, you know, evolves it in a different direction, but the core, the, you know, the principles, you know, I see it a lot. Um, even going to other seminars, it's like, all right, here's a different road, but they're they're doing the same thing. So I think it's, I think a lot of trainers are based upon, you know, using their their principles and their their concepts. But I don't know percentage wise of how many people, you know, stick to the system 100. Um, mm. I'm, I'm I'm really not sure. But there's there's a good crowd up here in New England. Um, I know a lot of the Navda chapters you know some people fight it some people don't but there's a lot of people up here in the NAVDA the field trial game you know the hunt test game that are using a lot of their core principles to get dog training done Um, so I I would say it's at least a 50 percent mark up here in this area. Wow well you were at a
0: excuse me you were at a kennel there and then you went on your own at what point did you go on your
1: own and how has things evolved for you today? So from there, I got a job offer to move to Long Island and exclusively kind of guide and manage a private preserve down there in the Hamptons. So that was kind of like, you know, a question mark of do I really want to go? And, you know, everybody said you won't know unless you try. So I left that kennel and took another job down in Long Island and ended up guiding from 2018 to, uh, 2022. Um, so went down there, you know, lived in Long Island, lived on the preserve there. Um, and then I started dog training kind of for myself at that time. Um, you know, just one-on-one with clients, taking board and train dogs. And then I really saw like a, a huge difference of leaving, leaving working for someone else and then working for myself as far as for the dog training. And it just became a huge, rewarding feeling. I got almost like a taste of what it would be like to have a full-blown operation for myself. I was, you know, committed to working at that preserve. You know, I had hours. I had to take hunts whenever they came through for six months. Um, So I still had some tie-downs on me, but the job there it was not turning into the job that was originally offered. So, and then by that time I had two daughters, um, you know, so moving back home was definitely on our mind. Getting off Long Island was definitely on our mind, but it was like, how? And then, you know, me and my fiance, Jamie, we were just like, let's let's just go big with this and open our own operation back home and just give it a go. And that was the scariest feeling I can tell you that I've ever (laughs) tried to kind of process is just giving up everything and starting all over and the big question mark are we going to make it um but you know at that time you know looking back you know at the last kennel i met sonny um you know 2015 i flew out to him um you know where i am today is a huge part of him uh, sonny p cars yep sonny p cars hate creek yep. kennel so Yep. You know, these decisions and everything like that, the history of this is, he had a big part in pushing me, pushing me. You know, you're not cut out to work for anybody. You need to try it. You know, it's better to try and fail than never try at all. And through this whole like four years, you know, he's like, you're going to get bored and you're going to want something more. And it ended up being all true. Um, So, you know, getting into this method with Rick and then, uh, you know, Sonny flew out there to work with me at the, at Quinnebog Kennels, one on one, and then right after he left, I was sent out to mentor with Sonny at Wisconsin. So, our relationship got you know stronger and stronger, um, working one on one and developing all this, um, and then evolving it a lot in kind of our own direction. And I got a huge taste of that in Long Island, and the the decision came to just go big with this and just do it for myself. Um, you know, invest everything. You know, build my own kennel um, move back and just go for it. And that, that's where we are today.
0: Well, I had Sonny on, I think two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago. And, you know, he's just a wealth of knowledge. It's, it's so great when we get a chance to talk with him, but, you know, we, we talked about just the demand for his services right now. And over the last couple of years, since, you know, COVID, everyone seemed to have a new dog during COVID. Um, are you are you seeing a crazy demand out there on the East Coast for people that need to get their dogs trained or that want to work with a trainer like you?
1: Yeah, and it's kind of where Sonny went to and is going back to is all dogs. So, you know, in Long Island, I I was not, you know, bird dog only. I was all trained, whatever, because the same enjoyment, you know, comes out of it all for me. I think it's helping the people. Um you know, just seeing them be successful. But Mm -hmm. I mean, we'd work anything. So the demand is for all dogs and that's kind of what we do. So we're not segregated to just hunting breeds or bird dogs. There is a huge, you know, percentage of them coming through, but the demand is, is huge. Um, people, you know, I would say the standard of training is different. Um, You know, I think it's more of helping people with their dog, just how to live with it, just how to raise it, just how to, where do I start? You know, what do I even do? How do I feed it? So it's, the demand is anywhere you want it to be. It could be the highest levels of bird dog training. It could be helping people raise puppies. It could be aggression. It could be fear. Um, It could be really whatever you want it to be. The demand is, you know, it's just sitting there waiting for somebody to, to grab it. When, when someone calls to ask
0: you if you'll train their dog, do they interview you for the job or do you interview them to accept their dog?
1: So a lot of our calls are referrals. So somebody had a positive experience and we help them and then they tell somebody else to call. Mm-hmm. Um, so like this morning I did a private lesson before this with uh, a vet tech from my vet. Um, you know, they got a new puppy, uh, German shepherd mix. And so a lot of the times when people call, there's already a little bit of history there that they have some trust in you. Um, mm. so that's kind of how a lot of this ends up is referral based. We, we do zero advertising except for our Facebook page. Um, so a lot of the calls that come in, people are already understanding of what we're doing. Um, very rarely does it, you know, somebody call and say, Hey, I just, heard of, you know, you and what do you do there? Then the interview starts. Then the, you know, we have to take it way back to the beginning, explain what we do, our methods and who we are and how long we've been doing it. And then it gets into their end of, well, this is our first dog or our third dog, the first one. So the interview more happens with the newer people. Um, but most people come in and say, Hey, I heard you did great things with my friend's dog. Can you help me? And it's like, yes, we can. And that, that invitation's already there for them. Um, so it's, it depends on the clients, you know, but more or less, it's, it's a very open relationship and it's a very, it has to be a trusting relationship. So that trust needs to be built first because people treat dogs like their kids. And it's a very emotional process for the dog, or I mean, for the human because of the dog. So mm-hmm. I think that interview, if you kind of look at it, it's a, it's a very very kind of trusting type conversation that you have to get through
0: for sure. So what would you tell people that have a dog that they're considering sending to a trainer to work with a trainer, to learn with a trainer? Um, what advice would you give them when they're looking for a trainer? And, you know, maybe it's somebody on the East coast that would come to you, but let's say they're in Texas or they're in, um, California or Minnesota. I mean, what advice can you give them when they're seeking that out?
1: Yeah. So that's a, that's a deep question because there's so many out there. Um, you know, if, if I was going to really put it down on what to look for, it would be don't go off just advertising, marketing, social media, because there's a lot of, a lot of kind of fake stuff out there. So anybody can edit a video and make it look really great. So go visit the trainer, even, Hey, can I hang out? But the dogs are really, what's going to tell you who the trainer is. Um, they don't have the capability to lie for that trainer. So if you go, you know, visit a kennel and it's chaos or it's dirty, or the dogs are fear driven or nervous, you know, ask them, ask him or her, um, you know, work a dog and, see how that dog responds around that trainer. Um, The dogs are really what's going to tell you. And if you don't know what you're looking for, it doesn't really help you a lot. But um, I think the dogs of what that trainer is putting out there. Um, The feedback that, you know, they're getting the accomplishments that those dogs are going out. Um, You know, how does that trainer work with people? Is he just a dog trainer or can he teach, you know, can Mm -hmm. you teach the people? Can you, can you get this dog to work for the owner? Um, There's a lot of big pieces that go into being a dog trainer. It's not just train the dog and then your job's done. It's, you know, now we got to get that dog to work for the owner. we got to get it to transition home. But, you know, when I I get people here apprenticing and coming to even stay for, there's another guy coming in a couple weeks just, hey, can I hang out for two to three days and apprentice? The first thing I tell them is when people come here and walk in here, I don't want them to think that they're at a dog kennel. And most people say, you know, and recognize things are different. Um, You know, there's no chaos. There's no barking. It doesn't smell like a kennel. Um, You know, there's a lot of pieces to that. So I think going to look for a trainer out there, you know, look at the dogs, look at the facility, look at the feedback that people are saying about that trainer Um, but do not just go online and say, man, they got one fancy website. They must be good. You know, they do great at social media and they must be good Um, because there's a lot of, you know, fake stuff there. Mm -hmm.
0: On the header of your website, it says the definition of detail. What does that mean to you?
1: Yeah. So that's, uh, you know, hanging around Sonny a lot, mentoring with him. Like I said, I owe a lot to him. It's, it was all about detail stuff. So, you know, it was not just detail for the dogs, but it's honestly the way food bags are stacked. It's how clean the kennel is. It's, you know, everything, how you walk, how you talk, um, how you greet people, um, the way that, you know, your ATV looks. It's just, everything has to be detailed um, to the part of, it's just different. It's a higher standard Um, and then training dogs on the training side, paying attention to that detail, you know, the eye blinks, the licks, the body movements, the muscle tone. Um, it just kind of consumed me that, you know, if you pay attention to detail for everything, um, it just makes the day easier and it makes the training, you know, that much easier. Um, so the definition of detail became kind of my slogan that it's more based upon a standard, Um, you know, we will go that extra mile for everything.
0: You talk about the details that you mentioned in the dogs, the, the blinks, the licks, things like that, the soft eyes. I mean, they all tell you something, what that dog is thinking in that exact moment. And that to me is some of the most fascinating stuff when you're working with the dog. We'll get into that. But when, when someone brings a dog to your kennel, how do you begin evaluating that dog to determine where your training process
1: begins? Yeah. um, I think the biggest thing is I try to see how that dog just even gets out of the car. You know, how does it walk through the front door of the kennel? Um, You know, is it fearful, tail tucked? Is the dog nervous or is the dog plowing through the front door, you know, confident? (laughs) Um, So like I said, the dogs tell the whole story. The person can say whatever they want, but, I try to just listen to the dog and pay attention to the dog because they're going to tell you what they need right away. So, you know, if a dog is in the car, they pull in and the dog's sitting there barking its head off in the car and the people are almost embarrassed to just go get the dog out of the car. Um, You know, we've had people carry their dogs into the kennel because they won't walk on a leash. And so you kind of can see exactly what that dog needs right away or, you know, what that lesson or what that, you know, program is going to look like for that dog. Um, so I think paying attention to that initial just first couple minutes, um, letting that dog conversate. So for example, this morning, you know that shepherd mix comes in. Um, we come out back to the training area. We have our obstacle obstacle course set up, and there's about twenty something dogs on uh, the chain gangs out there, and that dog just starts putting its scruffs off, scared for its life, growling, just extremely nervous. And then by the end of the lesson, you know, the dog is laying down in the same area, just perfectly calm, you know, and that's just all through that transition, that that leadership. But that dog told us right in the beginning, you know, I'm too young to lead. I'm nervous. I'm scared. So you have to dive in right away and help that dog. And all that help is, is just changing that pecking order, you know, allowing that dog to transition Um, but if that dog, you know, came in looking different, you know, things may have changed or happened quicker or slower for that dog, but you have to really pay attention to what the dog is saying. Um, people can tell you the whole backstory, but the dog, they may have it totally backwards. So I think the initial evaluation is let the dog tell you what they need. I love my dog. And
0: like you, I always want to make sure that she has what she needs to stay healthy year round and perform at her best in the field. That's why I feed Daisy Nutrisource high-performance dog food. Nutrisource dog food comes with their good-for-life system that includes four key ingredients that work together to support gut health, heart health, and the overall well-being of our dogs. I have complete confidence that my dog has all of the nutrition to excel in the field and make it through a rigorous hunting season. I've seen it firsthand, and she loves her food. Take it from me and my dog, Daisy. Nutrisource high-performance dog food can help your dog reach their full potential. Find the food that's right for your dog at NutrisourcePetFoods.com. If you're an outdoor lover on the go, then odds are good that you have toys and equipment that you want to haul. Aluma Trailers, well, they've got you covered. Their trailers are built by a hardworking team in Bancroft, Iowa. They have models for nearly any and every hauling need, from ATV and UTV trailers to utility, snowmobile, motorcycle, car trailers, and even fully enclosed trailers like mine. Trust me when I say that, Aluma Trailers tow like a dream. Their trailers are constructed out of lightweight, strong, corrosion-resistant aluminum, and they are 100% maintenance-free. Plus, they come with an industry-best five-year warranty. Visit alumaklm.com to find a trailer that fits your needs. Now's a great time to make the most of all that tasty meat you harvested. Maybe it's time to try a new recipe, sprinkle on a new seasoning, or make your own jerky and sausage. Trust me, it's not that hard to do, and it can be fun for the whole family. It doesn't matter what you harvested or what you want to prepare with it. Walton's has you covered. Walton's has everything but the meat. That's their motto. Waltons.com has everything, and I mean everything you need to process and prepare your meat. Plus, they have an online community called MeatGistics that's full of recipes and meat processing information. The sky's the limit, my friends. You don't have to be a pro to cook like one. Head to Waltons.com today and enjoy meat processing season. Thankfully, it's a season that never ends. So I, I think, you know, most of your courses are similar to a lot of trainers. You got puppy development, foundation level, intermediate, and then advanced. What, where do you begin? I mean, if it, if, if a dog comes in as a puppy, what age do they typically, do you tell, you know, a dog owner, bring your dog in at what point in the puppy
1: in their life? Yeah. So what we have set up because we train all dogs is before four months old, four months is the minimum age we can take a dog in for, you know, state law here into the kennel. So before then, we're after private lessons. If it's a bird dog puppy, you know, go get that dog and bring it to us eight, nine weeks old. Um, We're going to start stuff right away. We're going to try to replace mom right away and be that leader for that puppy. Um, Don't let it develop stresses. Don't let it develop anxieties. Don't let it have that gap from leaving mom to, you know, six months old. Um, if it's just a regular obedience dog, same thing, eight weeks old, or, you know, say they rescued it, whatever. Um, we try to get those private lessons going right away. Typically about four months old, um, we'll start doing more of a board and train style puppy development for bird dogs. Um, that's where the dog comes in and we're really focusing on prey drive. Um, starting to build a communication between us and the pup, um, And it's really starting to set the dog up for success for more formal training. The, you know, obedience-type dog or your companion-type dog, we also offer like a two-week board and train for those puppies to set up for success for formal training. We're finding even, you know, those companion dogs that don't have a purpose, don't have a job, they're just a pet. We try to give them that purpose and that job even though they're just going to be a pet. So that's a big deal for all dogs is – That young puppy development for bird dogs and for companion dogs, we treat it the same. Obviously, for the bird dogs, there's a lot more pieces to it out in the field, but we're trying to set that dog up for formal training. So four months old is where they usually come in and stay with us for a couple weeks. Before then, private lessons, we try to get after those dogs right away and give them leadership. How do you get a dog to increase the prey drive? So it's all presentation. So genetics... Um, but there's gotta be certain presentations that trigger certain primal instincts in that puppy. So if you just go out and you make a really man-made setup like a pigeon in a trap and just pop it, you know, you're just going to create a game. So you gotta, you know, and this is being around dogs, gets you to think and act and look at everything more primal. So I'm just picturing of, you know, I'm out in the middle of the woods and, you know, nothing else exists except this puppy and, you know this bird. So what would this look like in the wild? So handicapping a young quail or something like that, that's going to be successful for the puppy. But I want to see that dog primarily start to hunt that bird and start to become interested or play with that. So presentation is a huge part, but keeping it as wild as possible is another big part of it. You know, staying Staying out of that puppy's head, let him think, let him learn, let him make his own decisions. Um, you see a lot of these videos online of a puppy on a check cord and they're bringing it in, telling the dog to woe. And a little young puppy wants to progress towards the bird and they're popping it and, or they're setting the puppy back. Um, they're already starting to interrupt that learning process between the bird and the dog. Um, to me, that's a huge presentation issue. So that, that bird drive is all about presentation and the experiences that puppy gets to have. You want that dog to catch it. Yeah. yeah, I I like dogs to bump, chase, and catch and possess that bird more than probably other people do because it, it just lights a fire that will carry them through formal training later on.
0: Yeah, so that's when you put the brakes on a pointing breed and have them stop later on. But you just want the prey drive to begin early and you're talking right away, eight, nine weeks or how, how early in life are they, um, are they able to smell a bird in your world?
1: Yeah. I mean, with my short hair litters, I've, I mean, they're starting five, six weeks old, you know, I'm putting dead quail in there, um, and just kind of letting them learn to taste it. And again, I, being around dogs, I got real primal in the way I look at life and everything. So I just picture, you know, mom would bring back a kill, you know, Mm -hmm. and just drop maybe a dead bird in there. And then those pups would learn to run to it and pull on it, pull its feathers, chomp on it, eat it, whatever. So I start doing that with my litters of just, Hey, here's a fresh killed bird and drop it right in there. And then you can see the ones that initially run right over to there and start becoming interested. But that's, that's young, five, six weeks old. They, they start having that, that real interest there. Um, But, you know, private lessons and things like I try at eight weeks old, um, depending on what the breeder did with the puppies, but eight weeks old, just start right away with those birds and presentation. You got to be careful. You know, if you bring a, a dead bird out and show it to that puppy, you know, just to see initial response, some puppies will tuck its tail and back up or some puppies don't even think twice and they grab it or some are interested, but not. So you got to move at the dog that's in front of you, their pace. Um, my gun club is is pretty scary where these guys get these pups, like here's my five-month-old short shorthair. They, they go put a rooster out, and they're going to shoot over it for the first time all at once. And it's like the luck that those people have sometimes to just put that puppy out there, and it just all comes together. It's the scariest thing I've ever seen. So presentation-wise, <laughs> you know, for that young pup starting at five, six, seven, you just want it to be successful and positive, successful and positive because you could really do a lot of bad imprinting at that age also. What if you
0: have that puppy with a tail tuck? What do you do to get get him over that, to help him
1: through that? Um, So it's it's a lot of that chase game. Um, so you get a dead bird and they're nervous. Usually you get that bird moving, you know, and kind of, getting that dog to make progress towards it. Um, it almost works better than trying to like force stuff onto the puppy, but Hmm. turning it into like a, you know, kind of like a tease game with that, that nervous puppy. Um, sometimes the animation of the bird will, will get that puppy to almost make a mistake and go out there and become interested in it. So that's a huge presentation thing. Um, of just offering a bird and say, okay, he's a little nervous, so I'm just going to, you know, tease him a little bit and kind of pull it away from him. And when he gets pulled away from him, and you'll see pretty quickly if you you can read that puppy, you can pull him out of that little nervous mindset. Um, but it's not a bad thing if they're initially nervous um, of that bird. It's it's just exposure at that point.
0: Gotcha. At what point are you moving into the foundation level training techniques with the dog. And, and are you looking like trust, confidence, leadership? Are those kind of the key takeaways in that level of training?
1: Yeah. And like I said, we try starting that foundational concept stuff right at eight weeks old. So we're just prepping for a dog to even learn how to be still at eight weeks old. Um, You know, how to stand there, how to, how to move, how to, you know, come to us We're we're already prepping for that foundational stuff. So you know, if there's a minimum age where the dog is ready for like a program for it, that's for us is around like five and a half, six months old. Um, you know, and we're trying as a young puppy to prep for that five and a half, six month old program. Um, but the foundation is all about communication to us. That's what I tell people is, we started as a puppy. Maybe they didn't come to us as a puppy and they're just getting to us at six, seven, eight months old, all the way up year, year and a half, whatever it may be. Um, but that, that foundation is going to give them a communication, which is going to build that trust, which is going to build that confidence. Um, our obstacle course, we really strive during that foundation program and the obstacle course to develop and teach, you know, all the things that we're looking to do with the dog. So Are you on,
0: I'm sorry to jump in, but you said obstacle course and now I'm like, all right, I got to hear more about this because Sonny went on about this course and how it's evolution, how it's revolutionized his dog training over the last several decades. Are you, are you on the same type of program as Sonny with this course?
1: Yeah, actually Sonny, Sonny kind of developed this whole obstacle course thing back when I, I first met him, um, Rick sent Sonny out to mentor with us and we had agility equipment at that kennel, um, you know, for dogs to play on and this and that, you know, Sonny saw it as I can challenge my point of contact, my training with those obstacles and kind of defeat this primal resistance of fight and flight or stress, anxiety, aggression, whatever. Mm -hmm. So when I flew out to his place, You know, he had a whole course set up and he's like, this is what I'm doing with it. This is how I'm using it. And it's, it's mind blowing how quickly it's defeating a lot of the stuff that these dogs are coming in with. Um, And it was a mental defeat, not a physical defeat. It's not, you know, using force to try to get stuff done. It was just putting the dogs through, you know, a, a challenge mentally. And they, they used all their resistance to try, but it, it absorbed it it extinguished it. So I got mentored heavily with Sonny in that obstacle course stuff. And it has been kind of like, I tell people it's the goosebumps for me now. It's, it's getting a dog through that course and working them through that. It's been the core and the foundation of my whole training program.
0: I'm fascinated by it. I mean, I'm going to Sonny's next week and he's got uh, a handful of people coming out there for a seminar. Are you going to that by the way?
1: Yep. Yeah. I'll be up there. Oh
0: gosh. I can't wait. I just want to see how this whole process works because of what I went through on, you know, I used the hunt Smith with my dog, um, and George Lyle and I worked with her and and I watched him train other dogs and, you know, just, just having the obstacle course that he had was very minor, um, you know, table and teeter totter and things like that. But I just want to see how some other dogs go through that, mine included and and what mentals um you know mentally comes away for both me and for my dog, and then other dogs too i'm I'm just fascinated by it. You said the goosebumps, I think I'm gonna get it too when I watch it. Has that completely eliminated the woe post for you?
1: Um here and there, um like I said, sometimes you get certain dogs in um that you need to. Kind of step things way back to uh, more black and white so um, you know if I do post a dog it's completely different from how I learned it now the the woe post is actually right inside my obstacle course um, so if they do go on the piece of rope the woe post um, when they come off that the old you know kind of teachings was to get them loose and you know, be in a field where they're thinking birds, stuff like that, and work yourself to the next post, my dogs come off the post and go right into an obstacle. And that obstacle redirects their mind instantly and gets them loosened up. Um, So if I do post, I'm doing it in a different way. And the amount of posting, if I do do it, um, has been drastically reduced to barely really spending any time on it.
0: So, with the way that things have transitioned for you over the course of your training life, I mean, what has this evolution been like to kind of add these new elements to the training method that you've grown up or that you've learned through this, through the mentors?
1: Yeah, the, I mean, the obstacle course has been the biggest evolution to look at dogs differently. Um, but the biggest part, you know, what it's doing is giving the owners, a way to work their dogs, give their dog a purpose, give, um, kind of, you know, get through things together. You know, before that, we never really had a way to, you know, a dominant dog comes in or a fear-based dog comes in. We didn't really have a way to help that owner and that dog work through something together. Um, so we would build the language, but, At the same time, you know, the challenges were showing up in the field, the challenges were showing up in real world environments, which were mental obstacles. So the obstacle course has what I call put a problem solving mindset on a dog, but also problem solving mindset on the human to, I've seen my dog act like this before. Um, This is what I do in this situation. So through that obstacle course and through working through this kind of evolution of kind of the way things are working in the course, um, you know, we've been able to step way back and say, here's your dog, here's you, the owner, the handler, here's an obstacle, work through this together um, and we're going to help you and we're going to teach you and we're going to point out body language, we're going to point out the challenge, we're going to point out the fear Um, and this is what you should do when you see this. So then when you go to your vet and you try to walk through the front doors. Now here's your obstacle course in the real world. Now at home, here's your obstacle course. So the obstacle course is really just real world. Um, It is so much more than agility equipment. It's so much more than, you know, a dog just on a plank. It's people are having, you know, a little bit of trouble of making the connection. You know, everybody's like, well, what do I do when I get home? It's like, well, your home is now your obstacle course. The you know, going to tractor supply or the vet or runnings or, you know, wherever they allow dogs, PETCO into there, you know, that's your course. Now, the 4th of July party is your obstacle course. But the course initially builds that relationship between the owner and the dog to give them leadership, to give the dog mental stimulation, to work through the fight and flight, primal resistance of the dog, to build a very willing mindset with the dog. So it's been a humongous game changer um, for the owner and the dog to go and do something together. So all of our companion dogs go through it. All of our, you know, bird dogs go through it. Um, it's been a humongous help for us as the trainer to help the people.
0: Do you still check cord then when you're working with a bird dog that you want a back and forth in front of you?
1: Um, not really. Um, all of our, all of our training and the course, um, goes to off-leash training, um, on the e-collar in the course. And then by that time, when we get to the field, we can almost invisibly check cord a dog through that field on just a collar the same way we used to spend reps and reps and reps of getting a dog to turn and go with us, turn and go with us. Um, that obstacle course has eliminated a lot of like learning processes for the dog um, out in the field because it's already been done in the course, so they reference it and they said, "Okay, I know exactly what to do here."
0: That's that's fascinating to me because I had a big running dog that would just take off, and she would do nine hundred yard, you know, casts on the first when I release her to go. And in my mind, I'm like, "Gosh, this is not coming and you know, checking back and forth here at all. You're not doing anything, you know." And I envision another another uh, handler having the same issue and saying. How is a teeter-totter going to change my dog or help me in the field, in the hunting scenario?
1: Yeah, that that word handling way back. And, you know, I used to have a problem and call Sonny and be like, you know, this is what the dog's doing. He'd go, is he handling? And I'd be like, "Uh, I think so. Like, I don't know. Like, what do you mean by handling? But it was such a a different... um, uh, like a deeper question than of just is he handling? And I thought handling was you know pressing buttons and making the dog do stuff out in the field. But a dog that goes out there and gets self-employed or self hunts, you know, he's not handling. Um, so how do we fix that? It's not by restraining him with an e-collar or a check cord. It's it's going back to the obstacle course and building a different relationship. Um, with the dog. So all of our problems that are in the field, um, we don't go solve it in the field. We take it back to this obstacle course and that dog learns to look for direction from us in there. They learn to trust us. They learn to have confidence in our leadership. We can get our cues extremely light down to just body language. You know, I tell all my clients body language is the lightest amount of pressure you can handle a dog with. Um, Anything past that, if you have to cue your dog, you're having to tell them to pay attention to you. Um, they should be looking for direction and paying attention. So that relationship is built in that course. So that dog that makes the 900-yard cast and just kind of rogue runs and blows you off, you take that dog back to the course and build a different relationship to handle. Then you bring that mindset to the field. Um, That's where that connection happens. Um, So before this obstacle course, you know, dogs that. this dog's going to run off. We'll just restrain him on a check cord. But once that check cord's gone, now we need an e-collar to keep them around us. So the handling question was so much deeper. And now that handling, um, is really accomplished in that obstacle course. And that's, that's really where people learn to handle their dogs before they get around the field and get around birds, um, before they get overstimulated.
0: Okay, so here's my big question, Jordan. My dog handles amazingly until she smells a bird. Then she says, oh, let's go. And she could care less about me in that moment. And I know for a fact I'm not the only bird hunter out there that's had a dog like this because I've heard a lot of people say the same thing to me. Yes, handles great until that prey drive overcomes all the training. And I know that she was a young dog, so I have to give her that. But at the same time, the frustration is immense when the dog just says, I'm going after the bird. I don't care. We're not doing it together.
1: What do you do in those moments? So that's where your level of training has to be able to override the level of stimuli. So that bird, you know major handling, fall off the edge and fail. So Mm -hmm. now you take that dog back and now you have different training levels. So if we were talking about puppy development and you said, my dog just smells a bird, knocks and chases it, you know, over the countryside, that'd be exactly what we're looking for. Now you pull that dog off birds, put a foundation on the dog, um, and then you take that communication and then you step into the intermediate stage Now you have a communication to say, hey, my dog knocked that bird and is starting to chase or, you know, becomes overstimulated around the bird. Now your communication will be able to interrupt those mindsets. Um, So those cues that we're talking about on the leash or the collar that got Mm -hmm. transferred to the field, um, that's where you're going to be able to interrupt prey drive or interrupt trains of thoughts or give the dog, you know, direction and able to redirect them. Um, So typically when a dog gets on a bird and people don't have control or don't have that insurance with them to be able to handle, it's usually a dog, their training level is not going to be able to override the level of stimulation that the dog is on. So more birds is not going to fix that problem. It's something where you have to pull back and get that dog to handle crisper and cleaner. And we do that in the obstacle course. Um, And sometimes... You know, the level of training, you know, as far as for the bird work, that takes time, you know, taking chase from the dog and getting to a certain point of what the dog's job is on that bird. You're going to put rules on the game. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are all different training levels for levels of stimulation. And it could be the same thing of you bring me a companion dog and say, hey, he's great at home. But if I go out and I go to Petco and he sees people or a dog, I he goes crazy and I lose him. We're talking about the same problem. Um, we're talking about the level of stimuli, environmental stimuli, is making the dog fail. So the the handling comes down to the same fix, the same the same thing. Bringing it
0: back to that same foundation and just going through it again and again and crisping it up and and it, it really, I think you're saying eliminating for a brief period that prey drive from it to get that dog's mindset back into the handling and what our role is. And, and I've done that in the field multiple times over, you know, the course of some of these challenging moments where she just like the wheels came off and we just said, I I just told everyone in the line or in the group that I was hunting with, I'm going to take her back this way. Just going to give me, give me a few minutes here. I need to get her mindset back into what we're doing together here. Um, bigger picture is coming back after the hunt and just, you know, that time again, investing that time into your dog. If you're doing it on your own to understand, okay, we're going to develop this bond even stronger before we go back out there again. And I think, you know, one thing I've learned too, um, is when I get into the field, you know, like we have steps that we go through. It's not. I open the kennel dog comes flying out, running around, sniffing crotches of other dogs. And then we all go off together. Like I've had to get her in the mindset that when we go, that we're on, that we're working here, that we're together, we're a team. And so we come out structured before the hunt, because that's how we, that's how we leave. When we train, we, we leave the kennel, we leave the chain gang, whatever it might be in a structured way. And that translates to the hunt. Would you
1: agree right. with that? Yeah. And that's what I would call that handling mindset. So from the house, you know, to the truck, from the truck to the the field, that dog is looking for direction and paying attention because ultimately what they're doing, why they're hunting is they have to pay attention and do their job. So if you can reference that mindset before you get to the hunt or the test or the trial, um, it starts way back. Um, and that goes back to the dog tells the whole story when they come to the kennel. It's, you know, the dog is not handling at home, but, you know, the person thinks they have a bird issue or a fetch issue, um, but really it comes back to a handling issue. Once you get the dog handling, like you're talking about, um, they don't have a bird or fetch issue anymore. It just cleaned itself up because now the dog is doing its job again. So those, those benchmarks or those check marks that you have to, you know, is my dog going to pay attention? Is my dog going to stand still? Um, Those are all important aspects to check a dog into. You're going to handle today. You're going to pay attention. Okay, good. We're on the same page. Let's go hunt. Um, But people miss a lot of that stuff. I do a lot of private lessons and it sounds bad, but, and I've been doing seminars every Saturday. We spend a lot of time at people's vehicles, um, just learning how to reference a dog to pay attention and start to handle right in the crate or in the truck um, before they even come out to go on the hunt or go to the lesson or go to the seminar. Because a lot of the problems that people are, are dealing with can be stopped if you pay attention to detail, um, back at the vehicles. So exactly what you're talking about, that structure that you're asking for, it's so overlooked, um, in a lot of, you know, environments that people bring their dogs into. I've been to like some NABDA chapter training days, And it can be real chaotic, Um, but, you know, they'll go put three birds out, but the dog is out of control at the vehicle. It's already, you know, resentful from trying to get an e-collar on it or just getting a leash on it or it's jumping and pulling all over the place barking and then they they run all the way down in the field and cut the dog loose (laughs) and it takes out the first bird. And that is a handling issue. It's not a bird issue, but next weekend they'll put more birds out so I try to, like, communicate to a lot of people that do lessons and, you know, go to those days. Those days are to test your, your training level, not to train. Um, you know, you can't just go Saturday to Saturday and just put birds out and think things are going to get better. Um, the handling, you know, is what needs to improve. The the looking for direction needs to improve. The pecking order needs to change. Um, so that is, I mean... That is huge of what you're touching on as far as handling, structured paying attention. Um, that is the number one problem, I'd say, in every person that calls It has a problem in the field. It's a handling issue.
0: Hmm. Fascinating. I think we could talk another hour just on that. I wanted to get into your Wells method of fetch. Um, th- this will be our last uh, last topic here today. Um, and then maybe when we're out at Sonny's Um, I'll get you and Sonny and and George Lyle all together and we'll really dive into what we're learning hands on in the field together and, and dig into some of these other topics. I've, I've heard from a lot of our listeners, even since Sonny was on a couple weeks ago, I asked if people wanted more of this and it was overwhelming. Yes, more, more of this stuff, exactly what you're talking about today, Jordan, but, um, We're going to continue this conversation. We're going to dig into it. We're going to dig into the mindset of a dog and how to partner with the dog, how to bring your own mindset into this uh, to help them and to become just like the ultimate team out there together. But let's dig into this
1: last topic, the Wells method of fetch. What is that? So it's just your traditional fetch. Um, But the twist on it is it's... It all started when the people wouldn't accept the traditional, you know, ear pinch and toe pinch, and then also the dogs that I was getting in weren't necessarily set up to learn or set up to take direction or handle pressure, so I was getting a ton of resentment in, you know, more the old-school ear pinch way. So I started back when I was working at Quinnabaw Kennels to starting to play with this, and After really learning, you know, how to use that command lead, the wonder lead, and mentoring with Sonny about these obstacles, um, I said, why can't this bumper just be another obstacle that we teach in this course? Why can't we take the mindset that the dog is in, in the obstacle course, looking for direction and very confident and trusting, and introduce the bumper then instead of having this whole separate session, you know, creating a whole different point of contact on the ear or the toe. Um, trying to communicate through a brand new language like that. Um, so I saw a ton of resentment and pushback from the dogs and the people. So I said, things have to change. So I started playing with this of using the lead and eliminating the ear and the toe, but putting the dog in the obstacle course where they're already in a trusting, confident mindset, learning mindset, and ask them to the problem solve with the bumper. So I'm using the lead cue that the dog already knows how to take direction off of success uh, successfully, um, and introducing the bumper and teaching fetch in that relationship there. Um, and I started with it and I'm like, Hey, this is working. So I got it going, got it going and just dog after dog. And I'm like, man, this is working for every single dog. Um, there's zero resistance, you know, really working with the dogs and, you know, thinking back of, well, I already got all the resistance out working through the course. Um, you know, there's not that, that pushback. Um, so that was the biggest thing that I saw. So I kept just working at it, working at it, and it just became a thing. Um, you know. And it was just every single dog, the time was getting shorter and shorter. Um, so the leash, the command lead provides communication to teach the dog to put their mouth on a bumper and go fetch a bumper. And then that leash cue gets transitioned to the collar cue. Um, but that's kind of like a quick history of where it came from and why I started trying to find something different Mm -hmm. and then today it's it's been an extremely popular thing where I'm flying around the country doing seminars on it um, and helping people just teach dogs that were you know unable to be taught fetch or washed out or you know people are afraid to try you know the ear the toe and want something different Um, so that's that's kind of a little background about it, but it's, it's been working awesome. It involves reading the dog, which, you know, some people can struggle with. So there is, you know, a piece to it as far as you have to be able to read your dog and understand them a little bit. And that relationship is built in the course beforehand. Um, but it's been, it's been a game changer for me. Um, you know, time, the dogs look a hundred percent more confident going through it. And at the end there's not time trying to loosen them up. Um, They're not nervous of, you know, the fetch word or bumpers or anything like that. It's just been extremely, you know, kind of positive change for me.
0: Does that bumper transition to a bird at some point as you're working with a dog?
1: Yeah, all the fetch is taught in the obstacle course. So the bumper um, gets transferred to a frozen bird and gets transferred to a fresh kill bird. Um, The cue gets transferred to an e-collar cue. And then I completely train the dog to fetch in the obstacle course. So they're jumping, running through the obstacles with a bird in their mouth. Um, (laughs) They're doing the teeter-totters with a bird. They're learning to handle with a bird in their mouth or a bumper in their mouth. And then we go to the field for fetch. So by the time we get to the field, there's no possession. There's no hard-mouthing. There's no, well, I'm not going to bring this back. There's an extremely easy transition to the field of go fetch that and bring it back to me. And they go, okay, we've been doing this in the course for the last week. Um, So everything from bumper to bird is done in that obstacle course first in my fetch method. And the obstacles, you know, absorb any resistance or pushback around birds or, you know, old behaviors. So it's been, it's been really working really well.
0: Ah, that's fascinating. I can't wait to see it in person. If somebody we will wrap it up here. If somebody wants to see this in person, you mentioned you fly around the country and do these seminars. What's coming up for you that people can participate in or see this in person, or if they're on the East coast and they want to come to your kennel, what's the best way for them to get more information from you?
1: Yeah. I mean, the last seminar we just did was in Virginia. Um, we got the one in Wisconsin that's full coming up next weekend, but there's going to be more seminars probably advertised, um, for this optional course stuff and the fetch method. Um, but pay attention to our Facebook page, um, our contacts on our, um, website. Um, you can call up and if you want to come mentor, you know, I've had people from Canada drive down and all over. If you want to come mentor for a couple days or a week or whatever and work one-on-one with it, um, you know, we're open to trying to help people out so you can get in touch with us and we'll try to point you in the right direction and help you out as much as possible.
0: Okay. So the kennels that you operate is jwellskennels.com. And then are you on Instagram as well, or just Facebook?
1: Just Facebook. I'm not a huge social media person. So Jamie does a lot of the, the Facebook postings, but, mm-hmm. um, it's just Facebook at this time. Awesome. Well,
0: we're, uh, Grateful that you've given us a few minutes of your time. I know you've got a lot of dogs to tend to back there and work with. I'm excited to meet you in a few days, actually, next weekend, not this coming, but the following. And I think we're going to just continue to take this conversation to new levels. I know that it's helping our listeners. I've been hearing from our listeners. I've gotten positive messages. Um, And so I, I think our goal here is to help people because we know that when their dogs are confident And they are confident in what they're doing, it translates to just enjoyable hunting experiences together in a lifetime uh, partnership with their bird dogs that when other non-hunters see it and see that relationship that you have, I can speak to mine and the fact that when I open a door, she stands there and looks at me. And when I give her the cue, she can walk through it and she'll walk next to my side. And if I release her, she'll go do, you know, whatever she wants to do but there's just so much confidence in her that I love to see and I am amazed at the amount of jaws that hit the floor when they see what she does I'm proud of her um and I'm grateful for the mentorship that I've received from so many people just like you Jordan so thank you very much uh we'll we'll stay in touch and we'll continue this conversation next week on another episode of the flush podcast